it was a really glorious time to be a part of the royal family um, in, in this period around the time of whether England were particularly successful in the Hundred Years' War. And that was John of Gaunt's childhood. He was forward thinking, he was ambitious, but he was clever to try and to try and um, obtain this this title and this this power because really by doing so he was installing Plantagenet power into a major part of Europe. They assumed that he would then be sort of trying to get the title of King of England as well, which is where the sort of myth that he was trying to overthrow his nephew, I think, really sort of started to emerge from. Hello and welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey-Brule, and to our latest historian interview. If you've been here before, welcome back. If this is your first time, thank you for checking out this channel and there's plenty more in the back catalogue if you enjoyed today's episode. Today, I am talking to Helen Carr. Now, over the summer, I read Helen's biography of John of Gaunt, this book here. Um, I decided I was going to read a lot more around what you could argue is the periphery of the monarchs, um, which tend to be a general focus of people's, uh, mine included in the past. And Helen's book caught my eye. Um, but little did I realize how much of John's story I was ignorant of. And I'm very excited to be able to explore more with Helen today. Helen is an award nominated writer, historian and podcaster specialising in medieval history and public history. And of course, she's the author of this best selling book, The Red Prince, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, which was published in spring 2021. She's also the co-author and editor of What is History Now? Um, it's a follow up to her great grandfather's book, um, what is History, which was published in 1961. Uh, she's also working on her next book, This England, which will be coming out in 2024. So we're looking forward to that. She also writes for BBC History magazine, uh, has appeared as an expert on television and radio shows, produced and hosted her chart-topping podcast, Hidden Histories, as well as hosting podcast for, podcasts excuse me, for BBC History. Helen's background is in documentary history for television and radio, and she's broadcast many documentaries for BBC Four, BBC Two, Sky Arts, Discovery, CNN, and History Hit, and also worked on BBC Radio Four's History, uh, sorry, In Our Time. Helen is an elected fellow of the Royal Historical Society and currently with Queen Mary University, London. So as usual, members of my British History Patreon Club have submitted their own questions for Helen, which I will put to her at, after the end of the main interview. That section will make up the extended ad-free uh, version of this episode, which members of my Patreon can access. And if you are not already a patron, please check out all the details uh, and all the other great history lover benefits that you can um, benefit from, including putting your own questions to future guests on www patreon.com forward slash British history. Now let's get on with the interview. So Helen, thank you so much. I, I should hold up your book really. So this is, this is your book that I was reading over the summer and um, it made me very, very interested in John's story. One which I kind of knew I didn't know, but I, there's a lot of what I'd call myth busting, I suppose, for the, for the, the general, knowledge of John of Gaunt that probably most people have that, that you've got in this book. So thank you so much for joining me today and um, and delving deeper into, into his story with me. Thank you for having me. So um, I think many people, like I say, will be familiar with the name of John of Gaunt. Mm. You know, he's a figure that's linked with the Wars of the Roses. He's the founding father, the founding figure of the House of Lancaster. Um, his son, of course, Henry Bolingbroke, became Henry the fourth when he deposed Richard the second. Um, but he's also the ancestor of Henry the seventh. Um, and he gets his, his sort of, sort of tenuous, but claim to the throne through his mother, Margaret Beaufort, mm -hmm. who I think is granddaughter or great granddaughter of John. Um, she's the great granddaughter, great granddaughter, of great, John great granddaughter, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, this, so this is, uh, but this is where he's, he's getting his claim from. Um, and there is so much in his story that I hardly know where to start. So can you just put John into context for us when he's living, 
the family he's surrounded by. So John of Gaunt was born in 1340, which is right at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. His father was Edward III, who was very famous for being a warrior king. He was the uh, instigator of the Hundred Years' War, which was a war which was really a war of succession. Um, he was trying to um, claim the the title King of King of France as well as King of England through his mother um, uh, Isabella, and he. Uh, this was quite an uh, ambitious claim and he was certainly an ambitious king and that's something that we see going forward with the, with his sons as well, the sense of ambition. Um, but it was really over all of these, uh, these lands in France, um, particularly areas like Aquitaine, which is this sort of large wine producing region um, in, in, in mid-France. And he, John of Gaunt was, he was born into a family that were focused on this war. So everything about Edward's reign was really about claiming France and all of his propaganda, his politics, the way he installed his sons in um, various uh, echelons of European society were all to do with this, this claim. It was all about making England a superpower and buffering his claim to uh, the, to the throne of, of, of France. So John of Gaunt was born into that. Um, so that for most of his life, that was his his sense of identity was was really cultivated by that idea of um, of war, of chivalry, of royalty, of power, of ambition, of Europeanism as well. Mm. So and he has he's one of quite a few children. I know a lot of them don't survive. But let's talk about the other famous one, his elder brother, Edward, the Black Prince. Mm. What was he, I mean, that's that's another familiar name that that people will be um, will know. What's the relationship like between the brothers? It's a incredibly positive one. So um, yeah, the Black Prince, his his Victorian nineteenth century moniker that he was given, he would never have been known as the Black Prince in his his time. He was always known as um, Edward of Woodstock. So right. um, you know, uh, Prince Edward. Um, he was 10 years older than John of Gaunt. He was already an esteemed warrior. Um, he'd won his spurs at the Battle of Cressy in 1346 when John was six years old um, and the Black Prince was 16 um, when he famously plucked the, the feathers, the three feathers, um, out of the helmet of John of Bohemia, which is still the symbol of the Prince of Wales today. Um, and he was really a celebrity um, in, in the, this period in the 14th century. His victory at the Battle of Poitiers um, was was huge. He managed to capture um, King John of France, and he and he brought him back to England. And there was this celebration. Uh, people were lining the streets, and you know, shouting all of that how wonderful the prince was. And it was it was um, it was a really glorious time to be a part of the royal family um, in in this period around the time of where England were particularly successful in the Hundred Years' War. And that was John of Gaunt's childhood that early success, those two major battles, Cressy and Poitiers, both English victories. That was his childhood. And he was installed um, from a young age, really when he was just out of the nursery, into the household of the Black Prince. And, and the point of that was that his older brother was going to teach him how to um, conduct himself as a prince, as a warrior, as a military leader, but also as, um, as an effective uh, magnate. So the prince was, um, he was the Earl, I think it was the Duke of Cornwall. So he had ma major lands in Cornwall that he had to manage and and he had to um, exercise princely power. And that's how, really how John of Gaunt learned how to manage his later massive Lancastrian um, lands through through that early uh that, that early education provided to him by his brother and they were very close they did things together they they hawked together they um they uh, they jousted together there was actually there's evidence of the black prince ordering his little brother uh, armor to be fitted mm -hmm. um and a saddle so you know they did spend significant amount of time together and and, the, and john of gaunt toured with his brother throughout the country when he was visiting his lands in cornwall and, and also in cheshire as well um so he this was his this was his education. John of Gaunt was educated by his brother and they were incredibly close um, really until the Black Prince's death. And even then after that, for the rest of John of Gaunt's life, he was fiercely loyal to his brother's memory and the promises that he had made to him. Um, and I think that 
he lived very much in his brother's shadow, but in many ways he was a far more effective leader um, and, and politician than his than his brother was. But the thing is with with history, um, and even I suppose, you know, it, even then, it's the it's the military heroes that are and the hero the heroes that are prioritized, not really the people who have political acumen. Mm. It it sounds like um, the Black Prince took his. I should call him Edward of Woodstock, I suppose, when he known himself as the Black Prince, took his role as educator of his brother very seriously. Yeah, he did. And there was, um, you know, one of the major events of John of Gaunt's childhood was age 10 in 1350. He was taken on board his brother's ship at the Battle of Winchelsea, which was a major naval battle, which I, I don't think that Edward III really anticipated how big this battle would be. Um, because the sources talk about the night before all the sort of uh, the the leaders all get sort of drinking wine together and you know listening to music in the camp, and I don't think they particularly realised that it would actually be an incredibly intensely fierce battle against the Castilian naval fleet, uh, which were a powerful naval fleet, and they were sort of attacking the coastline and uh, patrolling the channel, and so they ended up. Um, facing them off, off just off the coast of Winchelsea, and apparently, according to the, some chronicle sources, it was uh, Queen Philippa uh, over, overlooked the battle from the clifftops, and she could see that see it unfurling in front of her. But she had her ten-year-old son mm. on board his older brother's ship. You know, he wasn't able to fight for himself. But what was important was that he was experiencing what it is to be a soldier. And he was experiencing battle from a young age because that is what his life was set out to be, to be a leader, to be a fighter, to win battles. Mm. And I mean, it was a close call, wasn't it, that battle? Um, it was a fairly close call, but it was an eventually um, it was eventually an, an English victory. I mean, it's difficult to say because so many of the accounts vary as to sort of how many losses there were. Some will account for thousands of losses, which I think is probably a little extreme. And then you might get sort of a few hundred um, in other in other accounts. So it's hard to name, to, to find exactly how, you know, how close it was. But either way, a formative experience for John. Yeah, hugely. At the age of 10, can you imagine? <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, now, again, I think... Um, the 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 story that comes down to us of, of John is one of someone who is uh, overly ambitious. Um, he becomes very powerful and rich. Um, we will get onto that through his through his marriages, um, but always as someone who who wants more. Um, but that was a contemporary criticism of him as mm-hmm. well, wasn't it? But you've gone quite a way in your book that, to dispel that. But can we can we can we discuss that a little? Yeah, so really, the idea that he was incredibly unpopular comes from uh, from that he was unpopular, but in London he wasn't unpopular anywhere else. So that is a really, really important detail. London was um, it was incredibly separate in the way that it was run and the way that the life was considered the way people live their lives, it was very different to outside of London because it was quite ghettoized. You had, um, you know, all of these different factions of uh, of, of um, tradesmen, but also um, people, you'd have, you know, a quarter of like a, a, a Flemish people. You would have a lot of merchants, who, you know, tr- peddling their wares, you know, shipping from across the continent. It was a very multicultural place. Um, but it was also a very wealthy place, not just because of the seat, because it was the seat of the of, of royalty, but it was also a place where these merchants were increasingly gaining power and influence. And so John of Gaunt became particularly unpopular in London, firstly, because of his claim to uh, Castile. So what was obscure about his claim to Castile was that he was claiming to be king, but he wasn't actually in Castile as king. So this was through his second marriage to Constance of Castile, who was the um, the daughter of the um, overthrown King Pedro the Cruel, um, who was nicknamed as such for, for basically murdering his stepfamily. Um, and he was, he had been locked in a battle uh, of over Castile with his half-brother Enrique Trastamara who the French t- 
took the side of. And the English took the side of Pedro. John married Constance, Pedro's daughter, and therefore tried to claim the title himself um, as king after Pedro's um, murder by his half-brother. Um, and so really this sort of battle for Castile between uh, between Pedro and, and, and Enrique was really between England and France because you had mm. England taking the side of one um, would be king and then France taking the side of the other. So it was really to sort of who would have the control over this major um, this major country um, being being now what we know as, as Spain. Castile was sort of the, the big part of what we know as Spain. It was separated into four different kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula in the 14th century. But Castile was the major one. It had a, pay, a powerful navy. navy. Um, it was really important. So John of Gaunt was he was forward thinking he was ambitious, but he was clever to try and to try and um, obtain this this title and this this power, because really by doing so, he was installing Plantagenet power into a major part of Europe. And in eventually, which I'm sure we'll go down to, he was he was successful in doing so. But um, it was it was ambitious, but it was also um, it, it was unfortunate for him because it became a bit of a um, yeah, it became a bit of an albatross for him. But he was unpopular because he was claiming to be king, but he was in London in the Savoy Palace and he was filling it with Castilians. So people in London didn't understand why this was happening. They were suspicious um, and it was it wasn't received well. He wasn't sort of greeted as oh wonderful king they assumed that he would then be sort of trying to get the title of king of england as well which is where the sort of myth that he was trying to overthrow his nephew i think really sort of started to emerge from he then became particularly unpopular because as his father became older he was and his brother was on his deathbed so this is it was over two years of 1376 and 1377 john of gaunt was effective regent he oversaw what was called the good parliament which was a parliament that lasted three months and it was when the commons delivered a catalogue of complaints against Edward III and his rule, which at the end of his life wasn't going so well. He was right. really just, um, he was increasingly unwell and he was just sort of, focused. he was inward looking. He just wanted, he just wanted to have a nice time with his mistress, Alice Perez, and really not rule anymore. So he just gave the responsibility to John of Gaunt, pretty much. And um, so John oversaw this parliament during which his brother died. You know, this is the brother he's been close to his whole life, but he had to, um, finish what these proceedings which eventually uh was successful for the commons they all of their grievances were heard and they were dealt with and that was considered to be a massive victory for the commons but then he became really unpopular because a bunch of those grievances that they had so for example one of them being the king's mistress alice perez they didn't like her they thought that she was fiddling the, the crown purse which it's quite possible she was and they um, wanted her out. They wanted to be exiled from the king's side. John of Gaunt sanctioned this. She was exiled. She was removed from the king's side. But then later on, a few months later into the autumn, he reinstalled her. And she was just one of the people who had been exiled, who had been proven to be um, mistreating the treasury. And uh, he reinstalled these people because he didn't like the power that the commons had exercised over his father who was the king and he found that dangerous and so he thought to re-legitimize royal power he had to go against these grievances which was the wrong decision it was feckless and it was wrong but it was um also i think at a time where he was incredibly vulnerable having just lost mm -hmm. his brother he was about to lose his father um and he was thrust into this position of effective king uh with with not really much um, choice in the matter. So that's why he was particularly unpopular. And at this time as well, he also fell out with the Bishop of London quite uh, extremely. So much so there is a famous scene where he was supposed to have stormed um, into St. Paul's and threatened to drag the Bishop out of, the, uh, out of St. Paul's by his hair. 
um, because he had refused to attend a king's council. So that'll do it. That'll do it. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, he wasn't particularly popular because you have to remember as well that the chronicle accounts were written by clerics. And so if you fall out with the Bishop of London, the clerics who support him aren't going to like you very much. So that's really where this impression we get of John of Gaunt comes from. But there is no real evidence to show that the suspicion, the major suspicion that he was after uh, Richard II's crown, um, there is no evidence at all to suggest that that is exactly what he was doing. And this goes back to the loyalty he showed to the Black Prince. And that, I mean, I, I, I feel like that's good evidence for him not wishing to usurp mm. um, his brother's son. Yeah, I mean, his intention was Castile all along. So there was a famous battle in the Hundred Years' War, the Battle of Nehera, which is less famous because it wasn't directly between England and France. It was with these two brothers, but it was supported by both England and France. And John of Gaunt was in battle alongside his brother. It was a major moment for him. He was victorious. He led the vanguard, which is the first line of attack. Um, He... um, fought bravely he fought alongside the black prince it was very chivalrous um they took lots of prisoners it was his formative experience of pitched land battle and he loved it and he you know it was extraordinary for him and it stuck with him his whole life and he saw castile as this um this glorious country that he wanted to control and that was his major ambition his ambition was never to rule england i don't think he ever wanted to rule england he was he was doing a good enough job and he was successful enough as duke of lancaster there was no need for him to Mm. rule england it made no sense so people have taken the fact that he's self-styled through his marriage but king Mm. of castile Mm. at the same time he becomes sort of effectively regent for his his sick father Mm. during that same period his father and his elder brother die leaving a young boy yes yeah King, and they put all this together and say, well, he must. Exactly. After the and if you put it like that, that's understandable, right? But there's actually no evidence to say that that's what he was trying to do at all. If anything is the contrary, he, there was a moment in Parliament where he knelt before Richard in front of the Lords and the Commons and he, he swore loyalty to his nephew. And there were there are multiple examples of him doing, you know, repeating his loyalty to Richard. And he never wavered in it. Even as on his deathbed, even to the detriment of his son, I don't. I, he never wavered in his loyalty. Mm. He talked about it being a London-centric view. Mm. So, mm. what does the rest of the country? Because he's Duke of Lancaster, he's got a lot of land, so he's yeah. sort of yeah. overlord to a lot of people. What, what's their attitude towards him? How do they find him? He was very popular in his land. So, a really good example of this, and evidence we have for this, is in the during the Peasants' Revolt. This wasn't just a revolt in London. There were still a series of uprisings across the country, um, which were generally put down quite quickly, whereas the ones in London was the major one that's famous. But there were a, a, a series of them, and, and there was a genuine fear that the country would, would literally go into total revolution. Um, and in Leicester, which was, um, I suppose, the, the major seat of Lancastrian power, even though it's how, how phenomenally confusing, being the House of Lancaster, you'd think that would be Lancaster, but actually it wasn't. It was Leicester, um, which was where his father-in-law, Henry, the first Duke of Lancaster, had really established himself um, and where he was buried. And there was Leicester Castle, which was where John of Gaunt spent a lot of time where he eventually died. Um, the people there actually rose up in defence of Gaunt. You know, they they picked up any weapon that they could find and they prepared for an attack on Leicester and they prepared to defend the Duke and his property, even though he wasn't there. And I think that that is demonstrative of the respect that they had for him. Mm. There were a few other... um, there are a few other reasons as well that he, there is evidence to say in his, in the accounts that he was a very good landlord. He looked after his tenants. He gifted well, he gifted generously. He paid well, he paid on time, he paid generously. People seemed to like him. When he married Catherine Swinford, he spent very little time in London and he spent most of his time actually touring his lands with his new duchess and they were well received. The Lancasters were popular outside of London. He was popular and he was well loved. And actually, even in Scotland, he was very well received in Scotland. He was constantly treating with the Scots through various March days on the borders constantly. And they looked after him. They respected him. Um, And during the Peasants' Revolt as well, they actually, the Scots who were quite effectively the enemy 
were um, they they cared for him and they protected him. So because he was up there during the peasants' revolt, yeah, he was. He? Yeah, he was in Berwick. Yeah, and so his 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 castle Leicester is 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 sort of obviously he's not there, but his his palace of Savoy, the the Savoy yeah. Palace in <laughs> yeah, London, it's tragic. Yeah, yes, it's let's tell tragic. that story for anyone who doesn't know it. So this was this is such a sad story, and actually, it was it's such a powerful story. It got me into him. This is the reason I wrote this biography because I was so fascinated as to what happened to the Savoy and why it was never rebuilt because it was this major palace. So you had this sort of Camelot-like edifice. It was crenellated. It had um, sandstone walls. It had the flags of Lancaster. It was on the bank of the Thames. So it is where, if you if uh, if people know London, it's where the Savoy Hotel is now. That's literally all of that uh, plot of land was taken up by the Savoy Palace. It was huge, and it um, it was it was part of this sort of very wealthy area of London. So much that it had to complete a tax code um, <laughs> to other parts of. It was outside of the city walls. So how we understand London now is that was certainly part of the city at that point. It was separate to the city. It was outside the city. So it was outside the city walls and it was on the banks of the Thames. It had its own sort of pleasure gardens and rose gardens. There's even a, a belief that the, the reason why I called the, the book The Red Prince is because there is this belief that the first red rose of Lancaster was grown in the gardens of the Savoy. So um, and that was where the motif of the red rose of Lancaster sort of emerged from. I don't know how exactly how true that was, but I thought it was a nice story. We like a good, a nice a story. Good story. Um, yeah. So it was it was a very important place. Chaucer resided there for a period of time. King John of France lived there in captivity, which he was very happy with. Um, he didn't yes. live in France. He just get to hang out and drink wine from Gascony. He had a wonderful time. The Savoy was a nice place to be. However, it was quite badly um, guarded, particularly when the Duke wasn't there, even though it was where he kept a lot of his possessions. And at the time, he was mustering to take an army into Castile. So he had stored a quantity a vast quantity of gunpowder at the Savoy Palace so during the peasants revolt John of Gaunt was particularly unpopular not with necessarily the rebels outside of London but it was really the rebels in London who wanted to attack him so there is this theory that oh he was the target he was the target he wasn't really the target he was the target from the rebels in London it was a faction of London rebels that entered the Savoy not what Tyler not that contingent it was London rebels they went into the Savoy Palace. They sacked it. They didn't loot it. The whole point of this was to uh, destroy the wealthy, not steal from the wealthy. Um, and they created a pyre of goods. Uh, they they put, put the torch. And onto that pyre, they rolled some of these barrels, which they had no idea what was inside them. And as I just told you, John of Gaunt was storing gunpowder for his muster to, for his muster to Castile. And so these barrels went up in flames and obviously, boom, through the Great Hall of the Savoy, this incredible, beautiful palace was near destroyed. Um, so badly destroyed, he never rebuilt it. I think there are multiple reasons he never rebuilt it, but from a very practical level, it was just so badly destroyed. Uh, the remains were eventually turned into a hospital um, under Henry VII, like a charitable hospital, and parts of the chapel that still survive, um, some of the foundations, but it was it was just utterly destroyed. So it is sad. It is sad because that was an incredibly important palace for Lancastrian history. Hmm. Can you imagine if we still had that huge palace? <laughs> oh, well, unfortunately, aside from the Tower of London, the 14th century or sort of 30, that would have even it would have origins have been 12th century. Um, unfortunately, we don't have much, but no. we do have the wonderful Tower of London, which kind of gives us some idea as to perhaps you know what it could have looked like. Mm. I did always wonder why he didn't rebuild it. Can you? Yeah. I didn't know if there might have been an emotional element of like that. It's been destroyed. I can't go there again. Sort of. Mm. He wanted to stay away from London. He right. was sort of wiped his hands of London. He, he, you saw less of him in London. He tended to keep to himself more. He tend, he actually decided after that to create Kenilworth Castle as his main seat. And he had been putting a lot into Kenilworth prior to that. And I think he just decided to sort of funnel all of his building energies into Kenilworth, but also largely Castile. Right. And it was only two years after 
um, or not two years, sorry, it was only a few years after the attack on the Savoy that five years later, he did eventually get to try and, you know, move himself to Castile. And he fully intended to stay there. That wasn't like a... So he I'm was intending on living there? Yeah, yeah. Building there? Yeah, he was, yeah. He took his entire family with him, apart from Henry Bolingbroke, he took with him. He intended to stay. And what happened there then? So in 1386, he was finally granted um, leave by Richard, which I think Richard at this point was becoming so petulant and difficult. He was just quite happy to wash his hands of his uncle. We probably should say that to remain loyal to Richard II was really (laughs) kind of a feat of... Yeah, yeah. yeah. As you, especially as you'll know in the book, there were a few sort of suggestions of attempts of um, plots against to assassinate John of Gaunt. And I believe those plots were genuine because Richard did indeed assassinate two of his uncles at the end of his reign. <laughs> so John of Gaunt sort of, you know, got off quite lightly. But he did. Um, there were moments where he were, confronted Richard about these plots. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an awful king. He was an awful king. Um, but he did eventually grant Gaunt leave. And I think they were both pretty relieved about that. It's like goodbye and good riddance. And he went off and he spent um, he spent two years trying to conquer Castile. And it just didn't work. He didn't know the terrain well enough. He took, um, he took it. He mustered an army. He took with him. A third of them died of oh, gosh. plague, illness. They weren't prepared for the climate. Um, but also the Spanish, the Castilians put up a good resistance. They they applied scorched earth policy to their own land, which is when they basically remove all supplies from English um, from 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 the English train. So they they couldn't actually obtain enough supplies moving through the the country um, to be able to be successful. Because when you are conducting massive invasions massive land campaigns you rely on the supplies that are inside that that are already there via loot via attacks on small towns or villages to to you know for food um etc you rely on horses you rely on that really um and it's impossible for such an extended period of time to take enough supplies with you to feed your entire army so when that's sort of stripped from you, which is a tactic that the French applied during the Hundred Years' War quite effectively, which is why so much of the Hundred Years' War was really guerrilla warfare. There were very few actual battles, if you think about the, the extent of time that they were the fighting was happening. The Castilians applied the same thing. So they really just shut themselves up in their various castles, which were peppered all over Castile. The English tried to attack them a few times, some successfully, some not so successfully. And they really were unable, they never locked the Castilians into a pitch battle because the whole point, the French knew, the French informed the Castilians, never go to pitch battle with the English because you will lose. <laughs> and so they and so they just effectively ran, you know, hid. They ran away and they waited for the English to loop to be demoralized. And that's exactly what happened. They were utterly demoralized. Gaunt was utterly demoralized. And tragically, right at the end. He was given by Richard on his, when he'd left England this gold circlet as sort of king of Castile, your very own crown. And he handed it um, to Juan Trastamara, who was then the king of, of Castile, and just like, you know, here you go. But then but they did uh, they did agree a, a a good marriage contract between Juan Trastamara's son, the Infante, and um and Gaunt's daughter by Catherine of uh, by Constance of Castile, who was called Catherine, and through them we had the um, eventually like triple down, trickle down. We get Catherine of Aragon. So there we go. You get that sort of like unity. Um, later and that's on. when people refer to Catherine of Aragon as having a lineage back to um, Edward the Third. That's that's exactly how that's exactly yeah. So so we've mentioned John's bloodline. Now let's look at his love life then. Let's look at how this how this start this all came about. Because he's married three times. So let's let's talk about the women. Um mm. if we yeah. can to whom John was married. They don't come in order, so I'm going to leave it to you as how you decide to uh so the first uh, he, he first married um, Blanche of Lancaster, who was the second daughter of the Duke of Lancaster, who was uh, Henry, Duke of Lancaster. He was the first ever Duke of Lancaster. It was an earldom before that, 
which is, um, we know some of the more famous Lancasters in the past, always been Earl of Lancaster. So he was a cousin to the king, Edward III, and they went to war together. And Henry, Duke of Lancaster, was fiercely loyal to Edward. He even acted as prisoner on behalf of of the king um, in the early stages of the Hundred Years' War. But the point of war that was such a, uh, why it was such a draw for so many people is, it's hard to sort of reckon with now, but it was a really great way of gaining profit. So through war, you could gain uh, ransom through various um, wealthy prisoners. So if you ransomed, um, you know, a, a, um, a duke of, so say, you know, a duke from France, you would get an extraordinary ransom paid for his release. So you'd earn lots of money from that. Or you would earn lots of money by conquering lands or the king gifting lands to you that you'd be conquered through France. So Henry, Duke of Lancaster, actually being a very effective military leader and a close comrade to Edward, did very well out of war. And he became very, very wealthy. And he had already amassed lands, Lancastrian lands, through his ancestor, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, um, who was the great adversary of Edward II in the early part of the 14th century. So Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, was already a powerful feudal magnate. He'd passed these lands down through the Lancastrian line, um, lost some, but then others, they'd been regained, some of them had been regained. And so under Henry, Duke of Lancaster, he was already rich, but he also gained all of this money and property in France as well. So he was funneling all of this new wealth into some extensive building projects. Um, he built... Um, this amazing cathedral called the Newark in Leicester, which some people might be familiar with. And there are still some um, remains of the Newark that are, avail- that are available to see even today. Um, and so John of Gaunt uh, married his daughter Blanche, who was famously Blanche of Lancaster, Geoffrey Chaucer's muse in the Book of the Duchess, which was um, a eulogy to her when she died. Um, she died actually sadly through our following there's rumors it was plague but it was actually most likely after childbirth after a, a, a baby girl was born Isabel who didn't who didn't survive but it's possible she had some postpartum complications from that birth and probably possibly blood loss possibly uh blood poisoning but she died um following that that birth um uh, shortly after the battle of Nehera um, so Gaunt's great victory, then this great loss through through Blanche. And it was really tragic. And Gaunt was certainly deeply affected by this loss because Chaucer describes the man in black being this character. It's a dream, it's a dream vision. Um, and it's the man in black. He is this um he's this lamenting figure um who is going through this this dream and he he's lost his lady white, and he sort of is mourning her deeply throughout this this um this dreamscape and he comes with these sort of very sort of sad and but but clear to verses he says you know she is gone and it's i do think that it was in reference to gaunt's grief um over over the loss of his duchess they were a, they were a, a, a popular couple um i think that he was loyal and happy with her um she was she was supposed to be very pretty um you know, she had all of the, the makings of this sort of very, um, the sort of Madonna type figure. She had given him, sort of, you know, healthy children. She was this very sort of, um, she came from a wonderful lineage. She'd given him a, a wonderful inheritance. So her father had died in 1361 and through after the death of then her older sister, shortly afterwards, um, Gaunt through her inherited the entire Duchy of Lancaster. So he had inherited a lot of money through her. So yeah, he was he was sad. He was he was at a real loss after her death. Mm. She left two uh, three surviving children, two girls, um, Elizabeth, uh, Philippa, and Elizabeth, and then Henry Bolingbroke, um, who was Gaunt's sort of main son and heir, and who becomes very famous later on. Um, so that was Blanche. And then after Blanche's death, a few years after her death, um, he remarried and you know he did leave it a good amount of time he before had, he didn't remarried. he have a mistress as well at this during this time well, this and catherine he had a swinford. daughter catherine swinford oh, but he she wasn't his mistress during this period there's no evidence to say that catherine and john of gaunt had an affair even directly after blanche's death right. that it comes much it comes a bit later so he is then sent off to become on behalf of his brother, who's very sick, who is, so the Black Prince goes off to be a uh, lieutenant of Aquitaine. 
and he is the prince of prince of Aquitaine, and he's he's and John of Gaunt, sorry, takes the position as lieutenant. Um, and the Black Prince is prince of Aquitaine, but he's so unwell he can't govern. He's sent back to England um, because he has this wasting disease, which some people have been called called, called dysentery that he uh, contracted on the Nahara campaign. But I think it was probably more like some kind of cancer, some kind of bowel cancer, because it was such a long, it was a wasting illness that lasted many, many years. Dysentery tends to be quite quick. So, um, you know, Henry V had dysentery and that wasn't, once he got it, he didn't last very long. The Black Prince, it was about, it was a a long time before he died. It was about almost a decade later that he died. So I think it was more like a sort of cancer. Um, So he went to take over in, in Aquitaine. And whilst he was there, the barons of Aquitaine said, you could go and marry the daughter of Pedro and therefore you would have this claim. And that sort of was like, you know, you know, it's the dollar signs in someone's eyes to John of Gaunt, but it was like the stars in his eyes. And he, he latched onto this idea very quickly and he was so excited to marry Constance, not because he was particularly excited to have a wife, but because he saw, he could see himself as King and a king of Castile. And he was so excited to marry her. He was supposed to wait for her in Bordeaux, but he rode out of Bordeaux, met her on the road and married her before in a very quiet uh, <laughs> ceremony, very un, um, exciting, unsplendid okay. ceremony, completely different to his first marriage. Um, and mm-hmm. then, you know, so it was all like stripped of pomp, stripped of romance, stripped of any sort of, um, you know, I suppose ceremonial significance, and it was really a contract. Of oh, marriage. so was that an, was that a, 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 a um, just a like we, we need to do this before anything yeah. gets in the way? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. No. He just wanted he wanted the title, and that's you know she was young; she was seven seventeen uh, when she married him. It must have been terrifying for her her father had just been murdered she had a younger sister who actually did also marry um edmund of of langley who was gaunt's younger brother uh her sister isabella and um you know it must have been terrifying for her she was effectively sort of had been this prisoner of the black prince this sort of collateral for the amount of the black prince had loaned pedro a huge amount of money she was effectively collateral for that um and then eventually so Gaunt, this was a lifeline that John of Gaunt would be marrying her and she would have that protection. She'd be the Duchess of Lancaster. It was a pretty good deal for her, but it must have been uh, extraordinarily terrifying for her. Um, so she then, um, she that they they went back to England and they were married for, uh, for a long period of time, but they had one child, they had one daughter and they lived largely completely separately. They had daughter uh, Catherine. And it was really... On Gaunt's return to England with Constance, that he started a love affair with Catherine Swinford, who was the uh, wife of one of his retainers, Hugh Swinford, who had died on campaign whilst he died in Aquitaine. Um, and she would have been employed by Gaunt as the maestress, the sources called the maestress, which is a kind of governess for his children. Um, his two daughters, Philippa and Elizabeth, and she would have cared for Henry as well. Um, and he was very good to her when he was um, older and he was um, king. He looked after Catherine before she died. Um, and they had this long-term love affair, but they weren't private about it. Everybody knew about it. it everybody was criticising it, condemning it. The church was certainly condemning it. It was another reason John of Gaunt was unpopular because he was just sort of flagrantly wandering around with his mistress and everybody knew they were together and she was having all of these children. And it was it was incredibly, it was obvious. He didn't hide anything. Um, it was humiliating for Catherine. I thought it was very sorry for Constance, um, his wife. Um, and it must have been, yeah, it was an awkward time. He, he was, when I've talked about uh, in the past about him being, quite arrogant this is demonstrative of that arrogance he was unaware of his state his his state and he was unaware of actually how important sort of maintaining um maintaining one's position and what that everything that entailed and the dignity of that for a public public facing in a public facing world that he had in many ways how important that was 
because mm. actually he just sort of said, well, I'm just going to do what I want because I've got the power to do that because I'm effectively regent of England now. My brother's on his deathbed. My father's dying. I'm powerful. I can do what I want. And it happened and it went on after Richard was coronation um, until the peasants revolt in 1381. So you have 10 years of their very open love affair. And then what's fascinating about it and sad about it really is um, the peasants revolt happens and then the love affair is terminated. Catherine has no more children. He is removed. She is removed from his household and she goes to live. Um, she goes to, uh, off to live in Lincoln. So it's, it's interesting really. What was it about the peasants revolt that changed everything? And that is because the Peasants' Revolt was an enormous event for John of Gaunt. It was huge. It was cataclysmic in his life. The loss of the Savoy was one thing, but he believed that there were rumour spread, you know, rumour, you didn't have emails and even fast, fast travelling letters at this point, but rumours travelled faster. And it was rumoured that thousands of armed Englishmen were marching north because Gaunt was in Scotland. He was treating in, uh, in Berwick on, on Tweed at the time of the revolt. He received news that there was this army who were marching for his head. He heard that the Savoy had been destroyed. He didn't know his son, Henry, had been in London. He didn't know if he had survived. He had. He had actually had to hide in a cupboard in the Tower of London to survive this revolt. And um, he was terrified. He was vulnerable for the first time, really, really vulnerable. He didn't know where he stood. He didn't know if Richard was going to go, fine, have my uncle behead him. He didn't he'd trust him at all. This was Richard. He's a young, young, he was a boy, he's 14. He, he knew at this point, even then, he didn't trust him. And he didn't know where he stood. He was refused passage south by the Warden of the North, Henry Percy, um, which was humiliating and something that they ended up having like some kind of like quasi dual face off about like in the years um in, in the months following the, the revolt um so he was refused passage out he was turned away by henry percy and his castle at annick and um he had to go back to scotland and he basically had to throw himself at the mercy of the scots and the scots did look after him he went back to edinburgh he stayed at holyrood and um and he waited and he didn't know what was going to happen and he had to do some serious reckoning as to why he was so unpopular. Why him? And he did. And I think he came to the conclusion that one of the reasons was his affair with Catherine. And he had to do some, he had to, he had to make some sacrifices. If he wanted, he had to say, right, what is my ultimate goal? My goal is I don't, I want to leave. I want to be successful in Castile. I'm unpopular for these reasons. There's also a, an element of the, 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 you know, the divine power of God as to sort of how much God's role played in all of this and played in his misfortune. And that's something that he would have certainly considered. Mm. Um, he, what he had been doing with Catherine was a sin. He had a, a very flagrant sin and he was certainly repentant and his death and his actions on his deathbed certainly demonstrate that he was, he was terrified of what the afterlife had in store for him because of his actions in life. Um, and he, you know, he'd been living in this, this extramarital affair for 10 years. And I think that it was, he believed that he was being punished and he had to, yeah, he sort of had to get his ducks in a row and he ended the affair. But for me, what was really powerful was I found evidence that um, a few months, about a month or so after the revolt, he had a shrine built at Nesborough, one of his castles, um, to St. Catherine. And I don't think that that is, I don't think that that is just um, random. I think that that is her namesake. And I think that that was a sort of memorial to their, uh, their, their love and their affair. And I think he did love her. They did, con did continue to be in touch with her and show her respect and look after his children with her. He sent her lots of goods for her household. Um, he sent her wood. He sent her wine. He sent her things like that really to keep her comfortable. And that's what I think is, we've, I've talked to somebody about in the past about sort of gifts that he gave to Catherine. And I, I'm sure there were trinkets and jewels and things, but they're very different. I've seen the gifts that he gave to Constance, which were 
gold circlets, crowns, jewels, rubies. Same with Blanche. With Catherine, the gifts that really bring off the page to me are things like wood, wine, property, land. He was making, he was ensuring her security. He was ensuring her autonomy. And I think that was the biggest gift. And I think it was showed respect, ultimately. And care. Yeah. This is what you actually need mm. from me. Mm. Mm. So how many children had they had by the time that the affair was halted? Uh, about four, I believe. I'm trying to think. There's like the Beauforts sort of, uh, the, amount, the amount they had escaped me sometimes. But I think it was four children. Yeah, I think it was four, four Beaufort children. Yeah, it was. Um, a surviving that we know of. And it, it stopped then, but... I'm sure we're going to go on to the fact that it was rekindled later on, but um, yes, we'll get. Can can we? Um, well, can you explain to us where the name Beaufort came from? Yeah, so they weren't initially called the Beauforts when they were born. Um, they were unnamed, but shortly before Gaunt died, and he was ensuring the security of his family and his will, he went to Richard and he requested that he legitimise them, but he had to give them a name to legitimise them. So he chose Beaufort, which were named after some of his lands in France, in northern France, part of the Lancastrian dynasty, which I think is is respectful, really, to the memory of Blanche as well and the memory of the, the Lancastrian household that he chose the name Beaufort rather than than Lancaster or anything like anything like that mm. and of course that's where we get the portcullis yes emblem <laughs> yeah yeah which yeah uh, the, later on I want to ask you about what you think John would have made of his legacy but I mean the fact that that's plastered over the House of Parliament must be yeah an, an interesting one as well so um so yeah so the children are legitimized so this is just before um he dies yeah he dies yeah but he has actually married Catherine by this point, hasn't he? How does that come about? Mm. So it was a couple of, shortly after the death of Constance. Um, he married Catherine. So Gaunt died in 1399 and he married Catherine in 1397. I'm just, I'm trying to remember. It's a lot right at the end. Life. Yeah, right at the, right at the end. Right at the end. Yeah. Might have been a bit earlier than that, but I think it was 1397. Um, he married her and she became the third Duchess of Lancaster. And there are many reasons as to people, you know, the more sort of romantic people go, he married her because they had this, they were so in love and they'd waited all this time till Constance had died so he could marry her. And yeah, you may, maybe, um, maybe. I kind of think, I don't think that he didn't love her, but I think that it was really because he was trying to do the right thing. So much of Gaunt's actions in the last days and last years or the last years of his life were all about uh reconciling his life the people that he was leaving his children his family it was about reconciling and trying to do the right thing and there's a chapter in my book called peacemaker and it really goes into that about sort of how in his older years his he just wanted peace he wanted to ensure the safety of his family he wanted to ensure um the legitimate legitimization of his of his Beaufort children he wanted to ensure to Catherine's safety and I think that he married her because it was a way to make her secure mm. and his children secure it's interesting I think his father sort of got to that point didn't he he was sort of wanting to just have a quiet life towards the end and yeah <laughs> his, his was like it. a quiet slash slightly hedonistic life John, right, John of course was like uh quiet and slightly on edge about Richard being completely mad as a box of frogs and hadn't really he had no he idea what he was going to do he wasn't far wrong no in, in, in his concerns about that and then and you mentioned earlier about John sort of becoming aware of God's will and so presumably that's on his mm. mind as it's yeah yeah very much so and um what was fascinating was his request in his will on his deathbed was that he would be so usually on the death of a, of a monarch or a noble you'd be high noble you'd be laid out laid laid out in sort of state as we've just seen um for 10 days maybe max he asked to be laid out for 40 days with candles sort of washed around his body in this candlelight and I think that that was a pen it was a sort of penance ah and he was right. hoping to be absolved in some way mm. of this of his sin through he clearly this thought he had 40 candlelight. days worth of yeah yeah exactly of sin to clear yeah 
Fascinating. So you, you mentioned there that the children, obviously the Beauforts, so they're given their name, they're legitimized. Mm -hmm. Of course, they were born before the marriage. Um, is is it true that at this point they are, though, barred from any claim to the throne? Yes, because, well, they had Henry. So, um, yeah, they had Henry. I mean, my research stops at 1399. So I haven't really gone on to the Beauforts from, from then and any sort of the politic around them but no they weren't in the line of inheritance at all not in, from from the from the legitimization there was no sort of descent there was no sort of line to the throne but then i don't think gaunt considered that there would be because mm. he didn't consider his son as as a potential king so i think that that wasn't necessarily something that it was certainly possibly been accounted for but i don't you know, it was all very, it was all very sort of linear up until this point. Mm. It went from son to son to son. And of course, you know, if you look back at the anarchy, there was all the issues with the cousins and the daughters, but that wasn't really the problem because they already had a legitimate king on the throne. They had Richard. So then Richard would, he would, he had, he was childless at this point, but he was still young. He had a young wife, um, very young wife. There was no reason to assume he wouldn't have any children. Mm. So I don't think it was necessarily... A, a question and I haven't found yeah. anything in the sources to my memory that that it was raised or even even Bolingbroke's kind of um legitimacy raised so I don't think it was it took a lot to overthrow a king in this period and I know it happened with Edwards but Edward already had a successor so that was different he had his son Edward III but you it took a lot to overthrow a king with no and install yourself as king that mm. wasn't something that really happened in this so it's not something that would have it's not a likely scenario that they're, no. they're going to have to plan for no it had, richard had to do some pretty awful things to get to that point yeah so john dies in february 1399 and mm -hmm. by the october i think it's in the october isn't it his mm -hmm. son henry bolingbroke is crowned I've done exactly that yeah so how does that come about? Because John dies not think with knowing thing this is going to happen, presumably. I think he died terrified for the security of the duchy lands. Um, I think he died in fear and probably in genuine realisation that his son was going to be disinherited. And he probably assumed that Henry would lead the life of a nobleman in France thereafter because he had directed him to go to the Valois kings and and for help and to for security because he had been um he had been exiled by richard right he probably was concerned for his life as well and assassination in france under the orders of richard because gaunt was a mediating presence in many ways he richard had fought with him he battled against him he'd been they'd been crossed but he was a brilliant diplomat he was a brilliant politician he had a very good way of keeping things from blowing up yes he'd had experiences in his life where he hadn't been so good at that but he was very good at the end of kind of trying to keep things calm trying to make keep the peace keep the peace which is why he wasn't eventually assassinated <laughs> but his right. brothers were because his brothers were like hang on richard you're awful like you are doing this and you're doing that and this is wrong and we're gonna rise up against you and, and so he had them assassinated but um but gaunt never did that he tried to constantly broker peace um and broke a sort of he was a mediating force so after his death there wasn't that presence there anymore he was the last of the sort of old um old guard plantagenets uh, who who had gone now finally mm. um because the younger princes weren't they weren't really part of that in the way that gaunt was you know this is the kind of cressy era like Poitiers era and this was a whole different political atmosphere as it was then. And so Gaunt did command a huge amount of respect and power through that. Um, but on his death, that was gone. So effectively, Henry hadn't, had, didn't have that protection. What happened was Richard immediately stripped the lands, as Gaunt probably suspected he would. And he took control of Lancastrian lands and basically made himself, um, you know, it was a complete autocracy at that point. And... Um, Bolingbroke that was for him that was like 
he'd tried to do good well do right by his father he'd basically followed Gaunt's advice over the years of dis of dis of discomfort and and, and friction followed Gaunt's advice religiously and then at Gaunt's death he just did he he said right I I, I can't no this is a complete um this is a complete shame to my family name to my my rightful inheritance and he he, he didn't have any choice I don't think he didn't mm. have any choice he had to either act or accept it <laughs> and let Richard take his lands, take his father's, um, you know, well cared for lands, take his, take the whole, you know, name of Lancaster, which was a name that he was incredibly um, attached to. He was attached to the memory of his, of his mother um, very deeply. And I think that, and his, and his grandfather. And I think that, um, no, he was never going to do that. So he had no choice. Richard, he started a war effectively by doing that and, and Henry responded. But what Hen Richard didn't realise is how many of the barons would flock to the side of Henry and go, we've had enough of you, you've had enough warnings, you're out. So was this a sort of straw that broke the camel's back in terms of everyone else's attitude towards Richard as well? Yeah, it had been like treading on eggshells, a sort of treading on eggshells situation with Richard for many years. There was a thing called the, um, I, I, I tried to keep it short because I know we don't have much longer, but there's a thing called the Lord's Appellant, which had happened um, about a, uh, shortly after Gaunt went to Castile. Um, and Lord's Appellant were a series of lords who, including um, including Henry of Bolingbroke and including um, one of the king's uncles, Gloucester, who had... Uh, stood against Richard and said, we're, we're not, we're, we're unimpressed by the way the country is being ruled. You have too many of these sort of close, um, these close advisors who are ill-advising you. They are villainous. Um, this isn't, this isn't fair. This isn't how it should be run. And then there was a whole kind of almost a civil war, teetering on civil war following that. Um, and then eventually Richard was forced to exile or some of his, these advisors were killed but then a decade later, he started to take revenge on these Lords Appellant and he started to sort of have them either killed um, or have them eventually exiled. And so Bolingbroke was that sort of latter of being exiled mm. along with Mowbray. So other so, people, of course, can see this happening. Yeah. The, the possibility that their inheritance is not going to go, or the, the, sorry, that their children are not going to inherit. He was, he was your quintessential tyrant by the end of his reign. And when people were given... An effect, a possibly effective ruler, who had always been a brilliant warrior. So Bolingbroke was not great at politics, but he was pretty good at war. Like he had spent a lot of his youth uh, crusading, so mm -hmm. he um, was a good fighter. They thought, great, this is the opposite. Maybe we'll get those sort of glory days of the sort of Plantagenet war kings back, and we'll get Henry on the throne. Mm. Um, and so that's why he was quite quickly so successful, but also he had all the supporters of the Lancastrian lands, you know, so Gaunt had been so popular. Lancaster had always been popular outside of London. So he had that instant support as he mm. landed in the North of England. He had the instant backing of all of the Northern barons. Yeah. Which of course his, his father had had so mm. many years before as well. Amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, begin to wrap up the main part of the interview so I, if someone is we, we've mentioned briefly some of the places Kenilworth etc but so if, we've also mentioned the Savoy boohoo um if someone's wanting to follow in the footsteps of John mm. where could you go now that John would recognize is there much left uh, he would recognize uh there are parts of Leicester that, that you could go to that he that are really cool and worth seeing um, Leicester Castle. There's there's aspects of Leicester Castle which are original from the 14th century. The Tower of London. He'd obviously recognise mm. um, some of the surviving 14th century aspects of Westminster. He would recognise. Um, where else could you go that he so would? We've got in the Midlands. We've got Kenilworth. Yeah, then, you've got sort of Lancaster cool. Castle. You could go to that. That that would still be recognized. That would be recognizable in, in many ways. Um, Kenilworth's a great one, though. You know, Kenilworth, yeah. I say, would say is a really fantastic place to go to if you want to get an understanding of Gaunt's uh, powerful castle building, particularly the Great Hall. Go and look around the Great Hall. Look at the way he's styled the windows. Um, look at the kitchens. Um, 
look at the staircase there. Mm. That is really, that was in his like height of power. So that would be a, a good place to go if you wanted an understanding of, of him. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be, I'd definitely suggest Calais as well. He would be very familiar with some of the older parts, surviving parts of Calais. Mm. Did he spend time at Tutbury Castle? Yeah, he travelled through sort of, or he had, Tutbury was one of his castles. He also oh, had, uh, I mean, he had all of the castles going going north. Pontefract is also another one that would, would you could go and see. I did like a little tour of the castles. Um, where else did I go? Um, Hartford Castle as well. Um, got a constant, spent quite a long time, a lot of time there. Um, yeah, he had, he had an, he had an extensive array of castles sort of in the Midlands and the north, in the north of England. So really you just sort of select them and there'll be aspects of, of John of Gaul and spend, depending on what sort of state that they're in. Fantastic. Well, I hope we've whetted people's appetite to, to look into John further, of course, starting with your book, <laughs> which you narrate yourself on Audible. So it's lovely to yeah. see you and hear you in one go. <laughs> Yeah, that was quite fun. I, I kind of, it was great because it was just before the publicity. So I, I kind of refreshed my memory when I was doing it. It was wonderful. It's, it's lovely. So, so I listened to it on Audible and bought the, bought the book, which is, which is my typical MO anyway. So um, before we end this main part of the chat, I'm going to put to you some questions that my patrons have put in. Um, but we're going to leave, leave the main part of the interview here. But before we do, obviously we've plugged this book, but let us know what, what else are you what else are you doing in terms of your work? Where can people find you? Have you got anything in the pipeline? <laughs> yeah, so uh, shortly after this was published, about six months later, I published What is History Now? Which is it's a little bit more of a historiography. It's a collection of essays that I um, put together and co-edited with Susanna Professor Susanna Lipscomb, um, all about the study of the past and how we study the past and um, you know who the past belongs to, etc. which I'd really recommend reading because it's got some great um, contributors and it's just a wonderful way of trying to understand how you look at history and how you can talk about history and understand the past. Mm. Um, and I'm currently working on a new narrative history book, which is going to be a big book. It's called going to be called This England, and it is a new history of the 14th century. So I'm starting right at the beginning uh, with <laughs> within, and it's the last of the plant, the of what I would call the last of the Plantagenets before the Lancastrian kings take over. So I go right from the beginning. So I'm covering Edward II, a um, little bit of Edward I, um, the Scots, the Battle of Bannockburn, and then all the way through to the death of and the deposition of, of Richard, the ascension of, of Henry. So John of Gaunt will reappear again, obviously, but um, it's going to be a big overarching um, book on the 14th century as a whole. So things like the Black Death will be very heavily covered mm. um, as well. So, yeah, that's what I'm currently working on. That's hopefully touch wood. If my, if my children behave and let me, um, it will hopefully be published in 2024. Fantastic. And can people find you online? Yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at Helen H. Carr and um, Instagram as um, Helen Carr with a few underscores. And I've got a website as well. But if you just Google uh, Helen Carr, historian, uh, I should, I, I do sort of rock up. So, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.